Four real small breakfasts with, uh, yeah, uh, with uh, cheese and ham and uh, ham. And then also uh, after that, uh, we, we have some steaks. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 52 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking stakes. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And the news, straight into the news, and the tour has had another cracker week. There's been a massive shakeup in the GC, and I couldn't believe at the end of the first week that it was only one week of racing. The first week, so impressive, but Moving on to stages six, we've got Greipel, Sagan, Froome in stage eight, showing what's what, showing the big boys that he can come out and he can play and he can smash them in his own awkward way. Port as well, rocking second, which was a pretty unbelievable effort. He started to chase down Froome at the end. It was pretty amazing, and he came in second. Also, Contador, Cadell, and Cadell lost time. And Schleck, even though he lost time, he came in in front of Cadell, which was pretty damn amazing considering the hard time I know I've given him, but the rough time he's had since he did crack his pelvis. Stage 9, Dan Martin, awesome day. He was rocking it. He had so much power up the climbs. It was a beautiful thing to watch. And also the day that Movistar decided to try and isolate Froome and was able to drop Port. So this is going to be a very interesting alliance as we move forward in the tour. It was brought to my attention by Kev from Babiki Cycling Clothes, and he believes that Contador can come away with this if there is a Spanish alliance made, and especially if Movistar is using riders like Quintana to just go out there and absolutely smash it. Quintana is a great sensation for me. I think his riding style, so aggressive. Maybe it is a little immature in some senses, but in others, it really lights up the race. And this race feels like a totally different race to last year, and there is still possibilities of another shakeup in the GC. Stage 10, controversial. Stage 10, Cavendish dropping the shoulder. i got to say, I don't think he's 100% guilty here. I think both riders were at fault. Both riders know what they're doing. They know where to be. They've done this before. And so you can't lay the blame on Cavendish. So I would leave him alone when it comes down to this. He missed out on the win, which he probably would have won. So that probably is punishment enough. Now, the other bit, which it's a little bit self-indulging because it's talking about my riding. I don't like to do it too often, but I did want to do a report of, of L'Etape de Tour, which I just participated in last Sunday. And was it the best day on a bike? It came pretty damn close to the best day I have ever had on a bike. It's probably in my top five of all time. I've never done an actual participation event like this before, so that was kind of interesting. And some people have said that the L'Etape de Tour is the Mammal World Championships. You don't know what Mammal is, middle-aged man in Lycra. It's pretty funny because that was the major demographic that dominated there. So it's not based on performance, but I did train for it because I was worried and I don't have heels where I am. So that was my other major concern. But I cracked on the last climb of the day, Ansi Semnoz 
It's 10 and a half kilometers. The first three kilometers are at a 10% gradient. It eases off six to seven percent for the middle section then the last three kilometers go back to ten percent so it was relentless it absolutely smashed me i groveled up the climb in way too long and it blew out my time which is a bit of a bummer but i gotta say i'm not really disappointed because everything else about the event was absolutely amazing and considering i actually started the event with a nine thousand plus number which had me right at the back with guys wearing compression socks and the hairy legs crew there was lots of people to wade through which kind of made it motivating in some ways but seriously though it was picture perfect weather 25 plus with a gentle cool breeze on the climbs manicured roads swept and recently resurfaced and the absolute best bit totally closed to traffic you had roaming gendarmes Mavic support vehicles and motorbikes and ambulances, a cheering crowd along the route and in the towns, drink and food stations that were only slightly slower than F1 pit stops, and it was easy to participate the hell out of this event. The descents were my absolute favourite part. Sections of up to 10 kilometres long with sweeping corners, narrow town streets, bombing down long straights through green fields. It really was a feeling of magic. It was so damn exciting ripping down these hills with nothing to worry about except my own skill and the occasional Gumby rider popping out in front of me but that did not deter me I was so excited for me it was like pure bliss on a bike going downhill and I really forgot about the competition I forgot about racing I was so deep that I forgot about everything except what was in front of me and I felt the speed And the grin on my face, overall, i got to say it's really something that I will never forget. I talk a lot about racing and performance on semi-pro cycling, but L'Etapte Tour was something that in the end, it really surprised me because it didn't become about performing in the end. It was about being and feeling at one with the bike. And it was really a magic moment that I shared on a bike with all these people. And at the end, I had absolutely nothing left but a big smile. And that sounds really cheesy, but it's the absolute truth. It was one of the great days on a bike for me. And it's got me thinking about doing something like this again next year. One of the things, too, we need to be careful about is looking at nutrition for health and nutrition for performance. Okay, so the nuts and bolts this week, the second installment of the Nutrition and Performance series. I invited Alan McCubbin from Next Level Nutrition onto the show to talk about sports nutrition, science, trends, and surprises. Alan is a sports nutritionist from Melbourne, Australia. He's the person I turned to to get the latest nutrition trends and studies from the scientific community. He is ingrained into the sports nutrition world and shares some interesting tidbits from his investigations over the years. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Today I want to talk about discussing achieving optimal performance through nutrition. You work with cyclists and you are one yourself, so I do believe you're familiar with the requirements needed. One big part of that is getting a balance of quality macro and micronutrients in part of your nutrition. I see it really vital into getting optimal performance. What markers do you use to know that you're getting the right balance? Yeah, it's a good question um, because a lot of markers are either hard to uh, measure in a lot of cases or 
um, not practical or not that accessible to, to people sort of day to day. So uh, I guess from looking at a, I guess what you look at is what the goals are. So uh, what are your goals in terms of body composition? Is it achieving a certain performance outcome? Is it a mixture of those two things? Or is there a, you know, some underlying uh, more medical issue in terms of you know, iron deficiency or something like that? So something like iron is very directly measurable uh, and you can measure that through blood tests fairly easily. And depending on where you live, access to those sort of blood tests uh, can be very easy or very difficult. Um, but in terms of macronutrients, um, I guess there's no uh, real way or no sort of biomarkers that you can use and, and measure easily to know that um, exactly what's going in, except for uh, attempting to, to log it in terms of a food diary or something like that. And we know that that process has its own um, pros and cons, and particularly the, the food diary sort of format does tend to underestimate what people eat um, for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, people do tend to underestimate portion sizes of food. And so when we put them into a diary form, we end up putting in smaller quantities than we actually eat. And it doesn't matter if you're uh, Joe Bloggs off the street or a professor of nutrition. We know all humans underestimate the size of their food. And generally speaking, the more food you eat, the larger the underestimation. So uh, when you have you know, cyclists that are doing big volumes of training, the, the likelihood of under, underestimating what you eat increases quite a bit. Um, I guess other sort of markers you can look at, obviously from a body composition point of view, you can measure that directly, whether it's something like skin folds to, to look at body fat um, or, or something like DEXA scans, which are certainly becoming more available in Australia commercially for people to go and, and have a scan and, and look at fat mass and fat-free mass and, and get a comparison of that. Um, so obviously there's, there's things that you can use to measure body composition easily, but in terms of actually measuring things like protein and fat um, in the body through biomarkers, that's um, not really possible at this stage. So do you currently use blood screening? Because I know there's a big trend coming out at the moment where there's a few services that are, are starting to look at blood screening and then putting that into a system where it's more of like uh, an analytics of your blood. Have you come across this and do you use this? Um, so in terms of like genetic testing? Um, genetic testing is is a little further. There's well, genetic testing. There's the service Twenty Three and Me, I think. But um, there's a couple of other ones: Inside Tracker and Wellness Effects. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I haven't really been involved with any of those. Um, some of the cyclists I work with do um, do blood tests every now and then uh, to get a sense of where something's at. But usually, there's a, a specific reason for it. Like it's someone who's had a problem with low iron in the past, and they want to keep track of, you know, whether it's um, whether that level is falling and whether they need to you know, increase their iron intake or, or introduce supplementation of their iron. But uh, apart from that, most of the cyclists I work with, um, from amateurs through to, you know, the domestic racing scene here in Australia, um, very few of them actually measure blood regularly. Is uh, supplementation a big part of what you prescribe people? Uh, not always. Uh, I guess the one thing I would look at is getting the basics right first. And I guess if you think about it like a pyramid or a cake even, you've got the base layer and then you've got that, that point at the top or the icing on the cake. Um, and I see that the supplements as the icing on that cake. Um, but I guess when you talk about supplements, you need to be um, very clear on, on exactly what you mean by supplements too because I guess supplements you can break into things like sports foods, you know, even things like you know, your Gatorades and your Power Bars and things. Some people would refer to that as supplements, but I would call that sports foods. 
Uh, and then you've got generally two other groups of supplements. You've got um, specific vitamin and mineral supplements, which I guess are there to correct a deficiency. So the iron tablets I mentioned before as an example, or a calcium supplement or a multivitamin or something like that. But then you've got what's called the ergogenic aid. So this is things like caffeine or creatine, beetroot juice, beta alanine, these sorts of things. And I'd certainly, um, you know, often they're, they're worked in uh, when I'm working with a cyclist, but not necessarily. And it's certainly not where I would start. It's usually the last thing I would do with someone because we want to get all those macronutrients right first, get the, the carbohydrate, the fat, the protein right. And there's so much there that I find um, people have to work on first before you worry about all those other things anyway. Um, one of the things that I guess from a, a research perspective in sports nutrition is we're becoming becoming much better at customising people's eating plans or their nutrition plans to their training plans so the two are, are complementary uh, and obviously as a training plan is not the same every day obviously in nutrition uh, and how much fat protein carbs total calories that you eat won't be the same from day to day as well uh, and I find that most cyclists have a very good idea of what their training plan is to achieve whatever their end goal is it's a race goal or it's trying to get through a grand fondo or, or whatever it is um, they've got a very specific training plan in place but what they don't have is a nutrition plan that complements that training plan. Um, most people, when you ask them what they eat, they kind of just eat the same thing every day. They might make a couple of differences um, or a couple of modifications on certain training days, but they don't really give that much thought to it. So you're talking about periodized nutrition there, or is this nutrition timing, or are they the same thing? They're brand new terms to me, pretty much. I, I, yeah. I don't think about it like this either. So this is a new concept to me as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I think nutrition, uh, nutrient periodization or nutrition periodization is probably a, a good way to describe it. I guess it's the um, the concept of matching your nutrition to your training schedule. So obviously, if you think about training for cycling, you probably have macro cycles and micro cycles in training, and likewise, uh, I, I would do the same when I'm working with a cyclist. Um, you know, normally I would come up with a, an eating plan that sort of matches the cycles within training. So it might be a seven day eating plan to match their seven-day-a-week training plan, so they always have a long ride on a certain morning of the week and a rest day on a certain day of the week. Um, but obviously that nutrition plan will also change through the, the, the different periods of the year. So when someone goes into a competition block, for example, uh, in the off-season, uh, at the start of the season where they might be doing lots of kilometres but um, fairly low intensity will be quite different to when they're doing lots of high-intensity intervals. Um, so I think you're right. It's, it's the nutrient timing sort of fits into that periodization because it's the timing of your nutrition around training sessions, and as the training sessions change, the nutrition changes as well. Moving on to the fuel system, just to discuss this, because I think it's, it's kind of the heart of endurance performance. And it's specifically when I'm talking about endurance, I'm talking about fueling hard endurance efforts with a mix of carbs, proteins, and free fatty acids. I want to get this out of the way first. Why is there so much hate on carbohydrates at the moment? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I wish I knew the answer. Um, I'm actually in the middle of uh, putting together an article on this topic with um, a PhD student over in New Zealand for cycling tips. But, um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting one. Um, a lot of that came uh, from a, a couple of specific people, I guess, in the industry. Um, I think one of the things, too, we need to be careful about is looking at nutrition for health and nutrition for performance because a lot of this actually came from um, discussions around nutrition for health and particularly looking at people who are maybe a bit older at risk of diabetes and, and managing diabetes is where a lot of this started. Um, but it sort of 
kind of snowballed and it's got to the point where everyone's, you know, uh, promoting low-carbohydrate diets for, for everything under the sun. In terms of sports performance and low-carbohydrate diets, the concept's certainly not new. Um, some researchers in, the, in Australia, Louise Burke from the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, her husband John Hawley from RMIT University in Melbourne uh, and, and others uh, did some studies of what they called fat adaptation at the time, um, which was following a, a very low-carb diet and increasing the fat to make up the difference in the calories. Um, this is going back to about 2000, 2001. But they were looking at it at a very short period of time. You know, could this for, you know, four, five, six days leading up to an event improve performance? Uh, whereas I guess what's being advocated now is more that people should follow a low-carb diet all the time and that maybe you don't see the benefits for, you know, at least six months of following that kind of a diet. It certainly seems a little risky to me and, and it screams a little faddish because... I think you're right as far as that spectrum between health and performance that it's on a sliding scale. So you can definitely, as soon as you start getting away from health, which is the recommendation for these types of diets, you start sacrificing your health because the performance element sort of takes over. Is classic carbo loading dead then or is it it's still applicable today? Um, I think it is still applicable. Um, and I guess with the, the low-carb side of things, I'm not saying it, it definitely works. I think part of the problem with this is that people have jumped to a conclusion that it is beneficial for exercise performance based on um, you know, a few anecdotes, you know, some ultra runners uh, breaking course records following a low-carb diet, although it's not a no-carb diet, and they do still consume carbs during um, the race itself. Um so, yeah, I think carbohydrate loading is, is still quite valid. Um, and particularly in a sport like road cycling, uh, you know, we think of it as an endurance sport, but it's interspersed with lots of very high-intensity efforts, you know, whether it's a sprint finish to a stage, um, if it's a you know, time trial, it's going to be at a fairly high intensity the whole time. Um, you, you know, if it's got mountain climbs that are, are really on the limit. So you've got these uh, very high-intensity periods of exercise, and that's quite different to something like an Ironman, which is kind of constant pace um, for the majority of the race. You don't have these periods of super high intensity and then recovery and then another intense episode. So certainly um, there's really no research published yet to say whether those low-carb diets are going to work over those sort of ultra-endurance events. And part of the reason is that they're very difficult events to study. No one wants to come into a lab and, and give a credible performance three or four times for eight or ten hours at a time. Um, the, the second issue is that the high-intensity stuff, again, we don't have any um, data or research to tell whether um, – the low-carb diets will cut it at that high-intensity intervals stuff and, and certainly when you get to sprints and hill climbs, whether you're going to start to, to lose out because of that. Um, the work just hasn't been done. So a lot of people are claiming a lot of things, but there's really no research to, to suggest one way or the other yet. There was an article that you wrote regarding nutrition strategies and having a look at the chart that you produced it seemed that taking carbs in during a ride was one of the, well, on average, it seemed like it was one of the, the most effective ways to actually increase performance. What type of carbs are you talking about? Is there a specific type of carbohydrate that is best or is it just any type? Um, there is a little bit. Um, when, when you eat carbohydrate, it doesn't matter whether it starts out life as a slice of bread or pasta or potato or it's lollies or um, you know, sports drink or gels or whatever it is, all carbohydrate that we eat digests down into sugar. 
um, well, it might start off as starch, a complex carbohydrate, but it's sugar by the time it um, gets down to our small intestine. That's just the way carbohydrate um, digestion works. Um, and all carbohydrate digest down into one of three sugars. You've got glucose, which is by far the most common. You have fructose, which is, is a bit less common. Uh, and then you have one called galactose, which often people haven't heard of before. Uh, if People have heard of lactose, which is actually one galactose and one glucose molecule joined together. And that's the type of sugar that you find in milk with you know, lactose intolerance and so on. So you generally have glucose, fructose and galactose. Uh, and from the gut, Obviously, these nutrients, like every other thing that uh, we get from food, has to cross the, the wall of the gut to get into the blood. And the glucose and the galactose actually compete for the same uh, channel or pathway, if you like, to, to get across that gut wall. Um, and galactose is much less efficiently used when it gets into the body. So generally speaking, galactose is not an issue because we're not um, consuming foods uh, or drinks during exercise that contain it anyway. Uh, and glucose is much more efficient. So you've got glucose and you've got fructose. And the interesting thing with glucose and fructose is they're actually absorbed through separate channels in the gut. Um, so all, a lot of the textbooks that look at how much carbohydrate to consume during endurance exercise sort of said 30 to 60 grams an hour was kind of optimum uh, and no more than 60 because you don't get any improvement in performance. But all of those studies um, going back to about 10 years ago were based on glucose-only um, or forms of carbohydrate that digest down into glucose only. Um, and then a, uh, a group in, in the UK led by a guy by the name of Asger Jürgendrup, um, and who used to work with Rabobank, um, he's a Dutchman who, who lives in the UK now, he uh, did a series of studies in the early 2000s um, that showed that uh, by feeding fructose as well as glucose um, during exercise, you can actually absorb uh, significantly more than 60 grams an hour, probably up to, to 90, uh, even more than 90. And, and through a couple of studies, um, they've now shown that that sort of higher level of carbohydrate intake um, certainly benefits endurance performance, up, probably up around that 80, 90 grams an hour mark. Is there any issues with blood sugar level management or spiking blood sugar while you are on the bike? Is that a problem at all or is, is the all of the anything you put in there, is that absorbed and goes away? Yeah, so essentially when we absorb carbohydrate into the blood, the glucose circulates around the blood immediately um, and is taken up by various parts of the body uh, and that's a process that relies on insulin. Um, so that's taken up by muscles um, and if we're exercising at the time and there's a need for the carbohydrate, well, we'll just immediately use that as a, an energy source. If we're not exercising or we're exercising at a low intensity and we don't need the carbohydrate, we essentially store it, and that's what carbohydrate loading is the day before a race. Um, fructose is a little bit different. It travels to the liver and um, it is processed there uh, and modified slightly, basically, to give you glucose. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, blood sugar spikes, peaks and troughs, uh, certainly low blood sugar, um, that's what hitting the wall or, or hunger flooding or bonking or whatever term you use for it, that is what it is. It's, it's low blood sugar and essentially because your body's uh, using carbohydrate as an energy source and when you use it all and there's nothing left, it draws what, what it can find remaining in the body, which is your blood sugar basically, um, and then that falls and, and you get that symptom. But in terms of highs and whether that's a problem or not, uh, again, asking Yerkendrup's group uh, looked at this in the early 2000s uh, and showed that uh, there did seem to be some effect of feeding carbohydrate immediately before exercise and then not consuming any during the, um, the exercise session. 
but only about 50% of people had this issue uh, and it didn't impact on performance, interestingly. So while they got this sort of low blood sugar due to this insulin spike, for a lack of a better term, it actually didn't impact on their performance at all. How about uh, continuous glucose monitoring? Do you think that's something that going forward will be very important? And do you know of any athletes currently using it? Only people with diabetes, which obviously it's crucial for them, um, and, and continuous glucose monitoring, that's exactly uh, what it was designed for, is to, is to monitor blood sugars for people with diabetes. Um, I don't think so, um, because I, I guess my question when anyone asks, you know, should we check this or should we monitor that, would be, well, is it going to change what you do? Uh, is it going to change the way you feed carbohydrate? Is it going to change... Um, how often you eat it or how much you eat or how much you carry with you. And I don't think it, it will because essentially um, I guess for, you know, you're going to optimise the amount of carbohydrate you can take and for some people that limiting factor is going to be tolerance. They just don't tolerate large amounts of carbohydrate. But at that sort of elite performance end, uh, the limiting factor is how much you can get across that gut wall. And as I said, probably about 90 grams an hour for most people, is kind of that compromise between getting it across the gut wall without any intolerance and also the, the practical side of it. So you could monitor continuous, you know, do continuous glucose monitoring, but I'm not sure that it would alter actually what you do or how you do it. I think you make a pretty good point there as far as ultimately you're looking to change a behaviour of some sort. So rather than just checking on something and not acting on it, it may be just useless to have that monitor there but not be doing anything with it. Because there seems to be a whole bunch of technology sort of coming out at the moment. And I know I was reading on your site that uh, that the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, has been using monitoring, oh, what's it called, Sense? Oh, the Senseware armband? Yeah, the Senseware armband. Yeah. So it seems like it's starting to kind of pop up in elite circles. What do you think of this yeah. technology? I think you've answered the question already, but what do you think of this technology? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess whenever you measure, it, measure anything, as I said before, the question is, you know, what, what can you do with that information? What use is it to you? Um, the Senseware armband is designed to measure energy expenditure, so how many calories you burn during the day. Um, and obviously that has potential use in a, in a whole range of areas, not just with athletes, but obviously with um, people trying to lose weight, overweight people, obese people and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of technology coming out. Um, a lot of it at this stage, like the senseware, is not in real time. So that can't tell you in real time what you're doing. Uh, and what they did find was that it was a pretty good estimation of energy expenditure uh, when athletes were resting, but during a training session, it, it tended to underestimate how much energy they use. Um, but, but yeah, like like anything, whether it's you know a heart rate monitor or a power meter or whatever it is, I guess the main question is you can have all of this data, but the question is what do you do with it? Uh, and the people that um, really make good use of it are the people who know what to do with it. Yeah, exactly right. You can just get overwhelmed with things and and not end up doing anything in the end. There is a pretty exciting product that's that's due to come out this year, which is uh, a chip that's a sticker that goes onto your skin and it will be able to actually track hydration and send a signal to a smartphone letting you know when to drink. That looks really, really exciting. I'm going to link to it in the show notes, but um, something like that I think could be quite important but kind of leads into what I want to talk about next, which is hydration. Mm. Some of your opinions on hydration are actually different to what my thoughts on the 
on the issue are, what are your current recommendations for adequate fluid intake? Mm. Yeah, fluid is a really interesting one and it's one that I guess as a, I'm not an academic myself in terms of I don't participate in, in research, but I read a lot of it and, and interpret it. Uh, there, there seems to be two really kind of polar opposite camps or that there has been uh, over the last you know, decade or so, um, one being that you, know, you should really minimise uh, any loss of fluid because it will affect performance uh, and another one saying, well, actually you can lose a fair bit of fluid before it impacts on performance and, and just, you know, thirst is a, is a good indication. Um, so anyone who's sort of heard of Professor Tim Noakes in South Africa, that's certainly his theory and he's, he's written a whole book waterlogged about that. Um, and then the other theory, um, I guess a lot of people associate with Gatorade and the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, but, you know, there's a whole range of people, it's not just them that subscribe to that theory. Um, the interesting thing, I did a review of this for a conference a couple of years ago and one of the things that uh, I wanted to do in that review was actually go back and look at the original studies myself rather than rely on um, guidelines or recommendations that were coming out from experts because obviously those recommendations are based on research but I wanted to go back and see whether I agreed with their interpretation of the research and what I found when I went back and looked at the studies is that the vast majority of them or, or in fact almost all of them really only measured two things they measured people that consumed no fluid at all and they measured people that consumed lots of fluid um, and most of the studies they concluded that um, you know, losing more than 2% of your body weight through um, loss of sweat started to impair performance. But when you look at the studies, what they did was essentially gave one group lots of fluid, gave one group no fluid, and it just happened that the difference was about the 2% drop in body weight. So they concluded that it was the drop in body weight that impaired performance, um, whereas others uh, would speculate that it's actually withholding fluid and the lack of availability of fluid when you actually feel thirsty, that that's what's impairing performance. So then I went back and looked at, okay, well, there's all of these studies that look at, you know, the two ends of the scale. What studies exist that look at all of the different bits in between, you know, consuming different quantities of fluid from nothing to lots? Uh, and there's, there's really not much out there. Um, and the other thing that was interesting when I looked at those studies is most of them are what's called a time-to-exhaustion study. So essentially you get on a bike and you ride at a, a constant intensity for as long as you can uh, until you can't maintain that intensity anymore. Uh, but that's kind of the opposite or the, the wrong way around when you think about a, a competitive event because normally in a competitive event you've got a fixed distance and you can speed up or slow down according to how you feel, um, so much more like a time trial um, type of effort, whereas a time to exhaustion is the exact opposite. So the intensity is fixed, but the distance varies. But in the real world, of course, the distance is fixed and the intensity is free to vary. So I went and looked at time trial studies, and I could only find one single study in the entire world that's been published ever that's actually looked at this, looked at time trial performance with varying quantities of fluid. Uh, and basically in that study, which was done by um, one of Tim Noakes's PhD students, uh, they found in that study that... Um, Consuming lots of fluid was certainly better than consuming nothing, so that was consistent with the previous research. But what they found was that um, basically consuming nothing or a small amount up until uh, the point where they were just told them to drink as much or as little as they felt like um, was impairment of performance. But once they drank as much or as little as they felt like, which only replaced about 50% of the fluid that they'd lost, anything above that, you didn't get any further improvement in performance. And interestingly, when you look at the... Um, drinking as much or as little as you like compared to drinking nothing, the difference was about 2% and yet there was a difference in performance.
I think it's a very important distinction to make because it could really affect the way that you approach your race as well. Is there an, like an absolute maximum per hour that someone should be having or, or should aim for? Um, the, I mean, the absolute maximum amount will depend on a lot of factors, uh, but obviously depend on the, the temperature on the day and how much sweat someone's losing. So if you're only losing a couple of hundred mils an hour of sweat, you shouldn't be drinking more than a couple of hundred mils an hour at all um, because you don't want to end up overhydrated and worried about hyponatremia. Um, and that's, that has happened um, probably more so in Ironman events than cycling. Cycling, usually the, the length is not long enough um, for it to be as much of a factor. Uh, <clears throat> but I guess if, if you think about worst-case scenario, you know, super hot day, really humid, people are just, you know, losing buckets of sweat, um, you're probably not going to be able to practically replace that, one, in terms of carrying the fluid, but two, the limiting factor is going to be how quickly your stomach empties that fluid out and the maximum you know, rate of stomach emptying seems to be somewhere around the one to one and a half litres an hour. So, um, you know, you could lose three litres an hour of fluid, but you're never going to be able to replace it. There's a couple of other interesting studies that you uh, that you discuss in regards to electrolytes and the role of hydration and cramping. I won't get into them now, but uh, I just wanted to raise them because, again, these kind of changed my view on their role as well because traditionally everyone understands that hydration is linked directly to cramping and uh, electrolytes are important for getting into your system when you're training and things. Do you have any just, um, just quick comments on these because they're quite interesting in the way that they do challenge what's out there in people's minds yeah i guess with cramping i mean the first thing i'd say is it's extremely difficult to study cramping because um it's so unpredictable you know you can't just point to someone and go right now cramp um so i can study it um so because of its unpredictable nature there actually hasn't been much research over the years um, but I, I guess there's sort of been two competing theories in recent times. One is the, the hydration or the electrolyte side of things, and the other theory is around um, the, the nervous system uh, and how that controls. And certainly if you look at all of the uh, observational work, and most of the studies in cramping are observational, that's all you can do, um, basically they find that the people who uh, cramp are no more or less dehydrated, have no more or less loss of salt, um, compared to people that don't cramp. Um, but the things that do predict cramp are uh, you know, racing for a further distance than what you're comfortable with normally or um, at a much higher intensity than what you do normally. So it's not a surprise that people are more likely to cramp in a race than they are in training. Uh, and then the, the final factor is for some people is probably biomechanical, um, you know, particularly for things like calf cramps that you see in um, sometimes in cyclists. It could be a bike fit issue um, and, and on swimmers is very common as well. Just kind of wrapping up now, if someone was to start thinking about the low-hanging fruit now or over the next couple of days or whatever, what recommendations would you have where people should start? Probably a, a couple of areas. Uh, one would be matching the amount of carbohydrate you eat to the amount of carbohydrate you need. Um, and that sort of has two benefits. One might be more carbohydrate in some sessions and you actually get more out of that session. Um, so that sort of talks to that potential 90 grams an hour that we are talking about earlier or, or the carbohydrate loading in a, in a race situation. But the flip side of that is not eating lots of carbohydrate when you don't need it. And when you're doing a, you know, a fairly low-intensity ride, a you know, recovery ride or uh, it might even be a three or four hour ride but it's not one that's at a, a particularly high intensity it's more of a social ride um, 
or you've got a rest day completely, they're the days that you probably can get away without much carbohydrate at all. And the benefit of that is you then reduce the overall calories in your diet. And as a result of that, from a, you know, if, if weight loss is important to you and you're trying to reduce body fat, um, you, you get a benefit there. So I guess probably the, the number one thing I would say is matching your carbohydrate to what you're doing. Uh, and that might mean increasing it sometimes, but it might also be decreasing it at other times. And the final thing I would say is just have a plan. Have a plan that matches what you eat to your training schedule. And those two things should complement each other to meet whatever the end goal is. And that goal might be a particular race goal. It might be just to do a, a charity bike ride and finish. Whatever that goal is doesn't matter. But the training and the nutrition should complement each other in order to meet that goal. Yeah, that's great advice. Something that's definitely overlooked. I know I overlook it as well. And taking that time out would probably mean a big difference to training, which is really important. Uh, getting the maximum out of yourself in each training session, I think, is something that, that people underestimate the effect of nutrition. So where can people get a hold of you, Alan? Um, probably the easiest way to find me is my website, nextlevelnutrition.com.au. Uh, and from there, there's links to the blog. Um, you can contact me via there as well. Um, or Twitter. Um, so the Twitter handle is um, N-E-X-T-L-V-L-N-U-T. Um, but there's a link from the website there as well. Yeah, I definitely recommend checking out the blog. I found it really interesting to kind of dig into the the articles on there. But um, thank you very much for coming on. There's a lot of information in there, and uh, I do think that everybody listening is going to find it really useful. Not a problem. So the main takeaways I get from the interview really are planning, planning, planning. Putting in as much effort into your nutrition in a periodized way as you would a training program. I don't think it necessarily has to be very strict when you do this and you could start off with a loose framework, but I definitely think there is a lot of advantage in planning out how you are going to eat at certain times of the year. The case in point is is Alan's biggest recommendation there, which is to know the carbs that you need for certain types of exercise and then when not to have carbs so you're not just loading up for no reason. Like he said, the carb is an entirely separate part of the fuel system and so it can fluctuate and you can choose when that carbohydrate goes into the system for when you're going to need it most. So join me next week when I talk about weight management. Eating the food to fuel us is tricky business and when it comes to losing weight, it can be even trickier. Find out how to determine your perfect race weight and body fat percentage and how to get there. So let's get to the tech hacks and products section. Check out this MC10 BioStamp. It's a smart sensing sticker that you wear like a child's temporary tattoo. When it hits the market in 2014, it will collect data from your heart, brain, muscles, sense physical impact, body temperature, even hydration levels. And it will communicate it all in real time to your smartphone or right to your physician. This product sounds absolutely amazing. It really seems like it's next level feedback. The technology is super exciting and it's only a year away. I'm really sure this is just the start of how we get our data and what data we actually get that is useful and what we do with it in real time. That's going to be the key here. If you can get data and do something in it in real time, that will definitely change the way that we approach how to fuel and hydrate during performances for peak performance. All right, that quote from the top of the show, it's Eddie 
Merckx. He's being interviewed by Stewie O'Grady about his nutrition back in the day when he was the cannibal, and he must have been the cannibal if he was consuming steaks before actually going out and riding a bike. That is pretty nutso if you ask me, but we all know his legacy, five tours in the bag and countless other wins, so something must have been working at the time. But that is it, so till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. So I'm here with the great Eddie Merckx and we're just discussing the hot topic of nutrition, of how things have changed uh, from today. to when uh, the great Eddie Merckx raced. I know these days, Eddie, we wake up, we have a lot of nutritionists in the team. We have pasta, we have oatmeal, we have bread, ham, cheese, omelettes. In the race, we have all sorts of special food, power bars, power gels, everything's for power, and then dinner, it goes forever. What did you used to have? What made the cannibal? All the riders of the team have the same. I, before we had small breakfast with uh, yeah, uh, with uh, cheese and ham and uh, ham, and then also uh, after that uh, we we have some steaks. Oh, yeah. my God. I heard steaks. It was, was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> so why did you why did you eat steaks? <laughs> yeah, because in that time they say you have to eat steaks. Uh, <laughs> you have to eat steaks for uh, to be strong and uh, and then a little bit uh, rice. And uh, but uh, in the morning, it, uh, b- before Milan San Remo, if you, uh, you eat at six thirty, seven o'clock, and then you have to eat steaks. <laughs> yeah, steak the, before the race. Yeah, before the race. Yeah, oh, <laughs> for so a that, dumber. Yeah, that's crazy. It's <laughs> absolutely crazy. And then uh, after, but uh, then and then you have to drink coke to put it down because otherwise you cannot put it down. <laughs> as long as so, it wasn't a left blonde. Yeah. No, not no, 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 not uh, not in the morning at uh, seven o'clock. Uh, and then in the race, the, the most we have uh, some tea uh, with some juice uh, for drinking, and then uh, we have some uh, fruit apples, uh, and then dry fruit, and also some sandwiches. Yeah, uh, it depends with uh, marmalade, uh, uh, some little cheese. Uh, like that, and yeah, for the rest uh, in the evening <laughs> again uh, soup. Then uh, we have uh, some fish, and then uh, pasta with steak again. Maybe another steak. And another steak, <laughs> yeah. And uh, every day in the tour, uh, haricot vert. So uh, <laughs> the green uh, beans, that yeah, is. Green beans, yes, yeah, <laughs> green beans. And in the race, the, the most we drink uh, tea, or sometimes uh, yeah, so, some coke, uh, but. Did you drink like we drink now? No, no. We Seems have like to, we uh, have 20, no, 20 bottles a day these no, days. No, no, no. We, we, no, no. And you, you, we couldn't take some drinks uh, to the... Uh, to, in the beginning, uh, when I was professional, uh, you could not take uh, drinks uh, on the car. Okay. So you have to stop going in the bar, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wrap some drinks... Did or you have the, to take your wallet, or yeah, they, yeah, they you just go home, Eddie Merckx, They give it to you. For no, free. no, 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 no. The, my teammates did that for me. Oh, no, okay. It's a bit too dangerous to go to the. So bar. you actually but started some, fast food. Yeah, <laughs> but sometimes the the owner of the the bar close the cellar and then they say oh. okay everything out your pockets off you go to more on the bike <laughs> and so they bring some glasses and it, but it was dangerous when sometimes glasses uh, crashed yeah. uh, on the ground and. Uh, yeah. 
That's was dangerous, but uh, the, the food was not. Uh, we have not special drinks. Uh, on the end of my career, they start a little bit with uh, some uh, drinks, but uh, no uh, special bars and things like that. Mm. Uh, it was only normal, some banana, maybe uh, yeah. some sandwich with a little banana, some things like that, but uh, uh, and so on. Yes. That's all made you hard as nails. Eh? No, but, but you got the nickname the cannibal, but you ate so much steak in the day. You didn't really need to eat yeah, the no, other that, 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 that was not the reason. Well, the vegetarian cannibal. Yeah, vegetarian cannibal. No, no. But now uh, I don't eat meat anymore. I don't eat steaks. I eat steaks <laughs> Still enough. digesting 20 years of steaks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there we go, ladies and gentlemen. That's what the great Eddie and Co used to wrote, used to eat back then.